You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the Post's newsroom to life on stage. Representative Val Demings joins the Post to discuss how Congress is charting a course forward, her legislative priorities, and the ongoing fight for racial justice. Let's listen. Hey, good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to the Washington Post Live. I'm Jackie Alamani, the anchor of the Washington Post early morning newsletter, Power Up. Thank you so much for joining us today. I am so thrilled to welcome Congressman Val Demings, the U.S. Representative for Florida's 10th Congressional District and former Orlando Police Chief, who was recently under consideration for uh, Joe Biden's vice presidential pick. Congresswoman Demings, thank you so much for joining us today. I appreciate you taking the time out of your busy afternoon. It's great to be with you as well. Thank you so much for inviting me. Uh, I was hoping we could just jump right into things and get started with the assault on the Capitol on January 6th. As a former police chief and someone who experienced the violence firsthand, are you satisfied with the subsequent investigations that we've seen? Do you feel safe going to work every day? Jacqueline, yeah, let's let's start with the attack on the Capitol because it's uh, it's still very fresh in my mind and it's something that I discuss with my colleagues every day because of the just disbelief that there was a break-in into the U.S. Capitol, the trauma that many of my colleagues and staffers face, the death of a U.S. Capitol police officers and dozens of others who were injured. We know four other people died. Uh, on that day, and uh, we still have more questions and answers. We are pleased that there are multiple investigations that are going on, but we need to make sure that we know everybody that was involved, whether that's inciting the riot, participating in it, or funding it. Everybody who had some role in it on that day needs to be uh, held accountable. Of course, we're also still dealing with the security issues uh, at the Capitol to make sure that our staffers and uh, members are safe when we come to work every day. We've, I think there are modifications being made to the security plan every day, uh, but we have local, state, and federal uh, investigations that are going on, and uh, we're determined to get to the bottom of it. So what happened, which was unbelievable that it happened, uh, will never happen um, again. And I'm not sure if you saw Congresswoman Ocasio-Cortez's Instagram Live last night, but she talked about what I think a lot of people I've spoken with are struggling with, sort of this post-traumatic stress disorder in the aftermath of this attack. How are you doing? Are, are you are you okay from it? Um... Well, let, let me just say this. Um, you know, I also listened to Alexandria's, uh, I call it a testimony about the horrible experience that she had. She had every reason to be afraid that day. She had every reason to fear for her life. And uh, I mean, can you imagine being a young person who works hard, is elected to the U.S. Congress, wants to get here to do good and find yourself uh, basically hiding uh, in the most iconic building of what a great democracy is supposed to be um, in fear for your life. And so but I'm so glad that she shared uh, her story. I think it's important for people to really understand uh, from those who were actual victims or witnesses on that day. When I was at the police department, a portion of that time, I served as a critical incident stress debriefing team a manager dealing with officers and employees who had uh, experienced trauma. Um, and so, uh, but I, I got to let you know, even with that experience and someone who worked in law enforcement and certainly 
uh, experienced it more days than I care to admit, it was still a very traumatic incident. And as I said earlier, there's not a day that goes by that I don't think about it, not just what happened, which was bad enough on that day, but I think sometimes what could have happened, thinking about what could have happened, that more people could have been killed, that members of Congress could have been tracked down and hunted and killed on that day and our staffers, I think can even be more uh, traumatic. And so uh, we still have a ways to go. Uh, I do not have the same level of comfort um, that I did before January 6th when I come to work today. And as I said, I know that there are a lot of brilliant, smart people working to make sure that we are safe, but we still have a long ways to go and, and a lot of work to do. Well, I hope you've got some time to decompress and and recuperate from the harrowing experience. Um, you know, Nancy Pelosi had said last week that the threat was coming from within Congress itself. She was referring to Congresswoman Marjorie Taylor Greene, a supporter of the QAnon conspiracy theory, who has threatened Democratic lawmakers. Should she be sanctioned or stripped of her committee assignments? Well, let me say this. Let me go back to the January 6th. Uh, when we were there sitting in the gallery and, and on the House floor watching the peaceful transfer of power, those electoral votes uh, being certified, um, and we knew the, the ballot mob was outside. We did not know what they were capable of. We certainly found out on that day. But out of all that was happening, when I heard the Capitol Police say that there was a breach of the Capitol building, that instilled the greatest amount of fear within me because I knew that that breach meant that we were, and those who come to work every day to protect us were no longer in control, that they had lost the battle of keeping us from danger. And so, you know, we spent a lot of time in this country as we should focusing on those around the world who may do us harm. We know we have adversaries around the world. But the speaker is absolutely correct. The threat within is a major concern when those who stand beside us, those who are elected with us, those who share the spaces that we share, also are the ones who threaten members' lives. The enemy within, I see as the greatest threat. And so, you know, I think that we all have reason to be concerned, not because of what we think or, or you know, what we uh, believe, but because of what we have heard out of the mouths of some members who are elected to the House of Representatives. And I believe that every person should be held accountable. Now, you know, a censure, a censure's, I guess, better than anything, but you know, we do have to, and I, when I say we, I'm talking about my colleagues on the other side of the aisle, do have to decide what kind of America we want to be. Do we want to be the, the America that the founders dreamed us of, the land of the brave, the home of the free, the place where every person can live the American dream and, and live up to their full potential, where we respect um, our neighbors and those who are different from us, where diversity is really our greatest strength, you know, that beacon of hope around the world. Do we really want to live up to that standard and be that America? Or do we want an America where uh, people who believe in absolutely, as uh, Mitch McConnell said, loony lies and spread them, 
um, and ridiculous theories who are racist, um, who think that discrimination is okay in the federal government or any level of government. Is that the kind of America that we want to be? I, I, I'm going to fight that kind of America every step of the way. I'm hoping that the Republican leadership will step up and do the same thing. Should she and others be held accountable? Certainly, uh, they should be. Uh, I, you know, a, like I said, a censor is a great beginning. I'm not sure it sends a strong enough uh, message. Um, I remember- you, you do think um, she should be removed from her committee assignment? I certainly think she should be removed from her committee assignments. Someone who would say, and look, I've met uh, some of the parents of children who were victims of Newtown. Some of the first responders who um, are still traumatized by the horrible events of that day. But for someone to step forward and say, oh, that that really did not happen. That's just a false flag. That is just absolutely shameful. You certainly should not put them on the education and labor committee where they will be making very critical decisions about what happens in our nation's schools. Um, and so certainly, I think we don't, you know, I'm not a person either who likes to elevate foolishness or those who perpetuate it. But I will say you don't elevate foolishness or those who perpetuate it by putting them on critical committees that directly impact um, people's lives. And in the vein of sort of taking this issue head on from a holistic perspective, do you believe that the Biden administration and, and President Joe Biden should issue an executive order identifying white supremacy and violent extremism as a threat to our national security? Well, look, you know, we had a hearing on Homeland Security, I believe it was September of last year, um, with the director of the FBI, Christopher Wray, and we talked about um, domestic terrorism, which certainly includes the actions of white supremacists. And Christopher Ray, and I, I won't say his exact words, but basically the summation of the hearing was that um, domestic terrorism and domestic extremists pose the greatest threat uh, to our nation right now. And so, you know, number one, I think everybody has a responsibility in this country of, you know, when you see something, say something. We have to call it for what it is. We as lawmakers have to do everything within our power to pass legislation that will hold uh, those who are extremists, violent extremists, accountable. I'm not sure uh, an executive order is the answer for that, but I do know that President Biden has made it quite clear in his denouncement of white supremacists of any form or kind. Uh, he is certainly not the good fine people on both sides president. Uh, he has denounced it, and I'm sure that working with Congress, uh, he will continue to support legislation that uh, further holds them accountable.
And, and what about Congresswoman Jackie Spears' call for the Biden administration to also sign the executive order that would vet social media accounts of military recruits, service members, and even federal employees to check if they have links to white supremacists and these far-right extremist groups? I think it's uh, critically uh, important. You know, I remember at the police department, we had a policy certainly that said you could not be a member of, nor could you associate with any extremist groups. If you were uh, found out to be a member or an associate of, it was grounds for immediate termination. And so I certainly think it is very important for those who protect us, whether that's the military, whether that's law enforcement, whether that's elected officials at all levels, I think that there should be uh, some major steps taken to hold them accountable and um, uh, get them removed from the powerful, influential position that they may hold. And so uh, to answer your question, I certainly support uh, Jackie Spears' legislation. And uh, as I'm sure you've seen... The president has talked a lot about unifying the country. You were, of course, a potential VP pick for Joe Biden. You've been an outspoken supporter of him. Do you think he's following through on his promise so far, even though the democratically controlled Senate is is expected to make their first moves today towards fast-tracking the $1.9 trillion stimulus package that would be passed along party lines? I think that President Biden was certainly um, aware of his uh, campaign promise. Uh, I don't think it was just rhetoric. I think he meant every word of it, that our country, as you well know, under the former president was so divided and so broken. And true leadership steps up to the plate and tries to unify and mend. I think certainly Vice President President Biden now That was his theme during the campaign. I believe he has kept his promise, evident by bringing um, the 10 uh, GOP senators to the White House to discuss the very critical uh, COVID relief package. This is a man who we don't have to look at his rhetoric today. We can look at his rhetoric throughout his political career. And he has been a bipartisan leader who has reached across the aisle to build bridges, build relationships, and get things done. Now, that does not mean that while the American people are suffering, we know that people are out of work, they're worried about the next meal, they're worried about the next paycheck, they're worried about um, being able to uh, keep their job and, and have a decent wage, they're being able, they're worried about their children going to school in a safe environment, they're hurting. That does not mean uh, President Biden's efforts to work in a bipartisan way does not mean that he will sit back and allow the American people to continue to hurt during this extremely critical time. He is going to listen, he's going to consult with, he's going to meet with, but he is not going to sit back and not provide the much needed relief that the American people need. And so um, he has tried. That's a good thing. He's keeping his promise, but we're moving forward. So it seems like you're making a distinction between consensus and unity. I'm wondering if you can further expand on that and address some of the president's critics who say that pushing the stimulus package through without bipartisan support isn't a unifying action. 
you know, when we think about um, unity and unifying our nation, I see that as coming together, respecting each other's spaces and places, beliefs, values, working together in a respectful and cordial way, respecting our brothers and our sisters. Um, but also, but it does not mean giving up your principles, your values, your belief, and what you stand for. Uh, and so we are a unified nation, right? We should be the United States of America. We should be a unified nation, but we bring our different talents and backgrounds and experiences to the table. And I, and, and we're, and, and working as one nation. Building consensus, you know, there's a saying that I will agree to disagree. Uh, it does not mean that, and I think um, Senator Susan Collins said it well on yesterday after the meeting. She says, no, you know, I don't think anybody expected us to come together today and suddenly come out with a plan that was 90% in agreement. They're $1.3 trillion apart but they began the process. We will never be able to work in a unified way or build consensus in a greater way if we don't have the conversation. If we cannot sit down at the table and have a cordial discussion, very serious discussion, without calling each other names, belittling, um, uh, criticizing and demonizing each other. And that's what the president and vice president had yesterday with uh, the uh, Republican senators. How refreshing is that? Uh, but you know, America's hurting. Last year, we spent quite a bit of time, of course, dealing with the public health pandemic, but also dealing with civil unrest, social injustice. We were, and the president of the United States at that time was doing everything that he could divide. When America was broken and divided and on fire, he was walking around with a gasoline can, throwing fuel on the fire. Good people on both sides. When the looting starts, the shooting starts, thank God we are free from that. And we have a president who does believe that we are the United States of America will bring us together in a unified way and build consensus when and where he can. I'm excited about that. I, I'm wondering though, you, you noted that as on the campaign trail, President uh, then candidate Biden was sincere and genuine about his promises to be bipartisan and unify the country. But now as we're seeing Republicans sort of tear each other apart in this Republican civil war play out, I'm wondering if that campaign of unity is just Pollyannish and, and naive as the Republican Party can't even come together on various uh, fact-based issues. Well, look, Joe Biden is a member of the Democratic Party. And Joe Biden may be a lot of things, but naive is certainly not one of them. He is the president of the United States because of his experience, knowledge, but also wisdom. Um, and so the disarray on the Republican side of the aisle is because of their own doing. You know, when you um, do not stand up, and this is a lesson that I learned growing up in my parents' house, I would hope that my Republican colleagues would have too, if they learned it, they have forgotten it. Um, 
I was taught to always stand up for what you know is right. Always stand up for what you know, what you believe in. When you raise your hand, and I've taken five oaths now, um, two as a police officer and two as a member of Congress, when you raise your hand and say that you will protect and defend the Constitution of the United States against all enemies, foreign and domestic, that you should believe that and be willing to stand by that. Yet we had roughly 140 members of the House of Representatives vote to overturn a fair election. And so the disarray that you see on the Republican side of the aisle has nothing to do with Joe Biden. That's their own issue because of their own wrongdoing and criticizing members within their party for standing up for what the majority of them, I think, know uh, is right. And so they're going to have to work that out on their own. But just like the 10 Republican senators went to the White House on yesterday and met with the president, wow, to have a civil discussion about what's happening with the American people, those members of the Republican Party who don't want to get on board, who want to abandon their values and principles and go for anything, fall for anything, then that's on them and they'll have to work it out. But God bless the ones who have the courage to stand up against what they know is wrong, like my classmate, Congresswoman Liz Cheney. And she's on the right side of this issue and she will be on the right side of history. So while the members of her own party are trying to judge her, you know, she's on the right side of history. And I, I, and I just got to say this too. When you blatantly stand up for and support a lie, when you blatantly stand up and try to overturn uh, a, a, a fair, fair election, when you blatantly um, uh do not respect or obey or stand by the oath of office that you have swore to protect. I, I just have to wonder what my Republican colleagues say to their children and their grandchildren. Um, and But they'll have to one day answer those questions because we will not be here forever. We're going to go home one day. And when I go home, I want to be able to look in the mirror at myself and not only like, but respect the person that's looking back. And so to those Republicans, though few and far between right now, uh, who are standing up, they're on the right side of this issue. They're on the right side of history. Look, I've had many other Republicans come to my office or say in private that, you know, speak out or speak up against some of the wrongdoing that they publicly support. Well, shame on them. And so, um, Back to what your question, I'll end where I began. The disarray and, and, and foolishness that is occurring in the Republican Party is because of their own wrongdoing. And I hope that they find their way home because they are totally lost right now. And I have so many questions, um, but I want to try to squeeze in one more before we wrap with some questions from the Power to Fly community. I have to ask you, there are no black women in the Senate anymore now that Kamala Harris was promoted to vice president. Um, at the top of the ticket in 2022, there are races for governor and U.S. Senate. Are you planning on running for the Senate or for the governor of Florida? Well, let me ask, answer your question uh, this way. Um, what I really want 
states around the nation to start doing is to look for, and they should be, but when you're looking at statewide candidates, whether it's for governor or senator, then of course, every state wants the most qualified, the most experienced person who brings unique perspectives, unique backgrounds to the table. I just want states to start realizing that many times the most experienced person in the room just happens to be a woman. And guess what? Just might be a woman of color. You know, many times when I talk to women about, in general, of, of all races, about running, you know, they, they, they struggle with raising money. They struggle with even being recognized or noticed or for the work that they do. And so we just need to change our thinking as a nation. You want the most qualified person? The most qualified person just might be that woman in the room. Uh, number two, as I did when I decided to be a social worker, a law enforcement officer, a career law enforcement officer, raised my hand as a chief of police and ran for Congress. I want to be where I can do the greatest work on behalf of the people that I represent. If that keeps me in the House of Representatives, I'm there. If that takes me to another elected position, or at least the run, then I'm there. We'll have to see uh, what happens. As you know, we have a lot of work to do in the House. We're beginning our second uh, impeachment trial. Imagine accountability. There's a lot of work. I'm honored to be a part of the work here. We'll see what 2022 brings. So that doesn't sound like a, a no. It seems like you're keeping the door open. And I know the I Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer. I am keeping the door open. And uh, I know Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer has been sniffing around looking for someone to challenge Marco Rubio. Is he actively trying to recruit you? Are those conversations you're having with him right now? Well, I certainly would not uh, talk about any private conversations that I am having. But um, as I said, um, there's plenty of work to do in the House right now. If that work takes me to another campaign, then I'm keeping that door open. Um, and I want to squeeze in, I'm sorry, just one more question before we get to our uh, community questions, because while we're on the topic, I think it's really important to talk about, but you're also, um, you know, invested in a an effort to increase diversity in small media outlets around your state that cater to a broader and more diverse range of communities. Can you talk about that vision and, and how you're helping make these outlets more economically viable? Well, I'm, I'm so um, delighted that uh, the legislation to increase media diversity, um, to at least work as a body, a legislative body, uh, passed the uh, House of Representatives overwhelmingly. And, you know, as someone who served as a social worker, for someone who served as a career law enforcement officer, one of the things that I know firsthand is that who tells the story matters. And being able to have the stories told by persons of diverse backgrounds and experiences, being able to have the story told by sources that are trusted by all communities, increasing diversity, whether you're in front of the camera, behind the camera, whether you own the business, you're the decision maker at the table, it matters. And, you know, as we look at how opinions are shaped within this country, some of the issues that we've dealt with, 
COVID-19, for example, the response to COVID-19 in some communities that have been left behind, social injustice, police misconduct, reforming our criminal justice uh, system, improving communities, not leaving any communities behind, regardless of the economic makeup in the community or the racial makeup in the community. Many opinions are formed by who telling that story. And I think that increasing media diversity throughout our nation is so very important. We know the Kerner Report was done over 50 years ago that talked about how important this particular topic is and how it shapes uh, uh, responses and where resources go uh, within our community. And so it is a, a work that's still in progress. I'm glad to be a part of it and look forward to continuing the work with uh, members of Congress, but also with those in the private sector to really move this ball down the field. Okay, now I wanna get to our community questions. Congresswoman, we're gonna do this in a fast lightning round so we can start, try and squeeze everything in. First, we're gonna start with Tracy Montano from Florida, who asks, how can more women in career law enforcement positions serve post-retirement at a local, state, and federal level to improve and diversify recruitment and training, especially as it pertains to effective communication, unconscious bias, and strong community relationships? You know, the one thing about serving as a law enforcement officer uh, and certainly the chief of police, uh, I got to see my community uh, or people at their best and people at their worst. Uh, I got to be involved in so many different aspects of a person's life. Um, many people think that the majority of what police officers do is um, arrest people and put them in jail. That is not the majority of what we do. As law enforcement officers, they deal with quality of life issues all the time. And I think it's so important that we create forums just like this one, or town halls, or have sessions where we can get in front of small groups and talk to uh, women in particular about those experiences, the pros, the cons, sometimes some of the uh, uh, joys and pains and fears that we as as women uh, have when we are either going into the private or the public sector. I talk a lot about leadership and I what I believe are the three principles of leadership, which is courage, preparation, and opportunity, um, and, and dealing with our own fears. And I think, I appreciate the question coming from my home state, creating greater opportunities so that we can talk to women about where they want to be, where they see themselves in 5, 10, 20 years, and helping them develop the, the uh, plan to get there are so important. So I appreciate that question because now I'm going to be thinking about it and, and coming up with some ideas. Thank you. We've got another question from the Power to Fly community, and this one comes from Julian Steptoe from California, who's asking how a comprehensive reparations bill might propel American descendants of slavery into leadership positions today. Well, California, I certainly appreciate that question. You know, last year, year before last now, uh, when I was giving my opening statement at the end of the impeachment uh, hearings, uh, I made a statement that uh, I am a descendant of slaves, slaves who knew that they would not make it, but hoped and dreamed that one day I would make it. 
And so I do think, you know, we look at this country, this country who was built to be the best, the brightest, the greatest. Um, Jim Clyburn likes to ask this question. He says, there's no debate about America's greatness, uh, but the challenge is how do we make America's greatness accessible to all Americans? And so if we look at racism, racism has been the ghost in the room for 400 years in this country. And we have gone through several different movements to try to level the playing field. But what we do know is that you can't just change a law and say, okay, now anybody can work at this company or anybody can go to this college or anybody can run for office and say, that's all we need to do. We also have to remember the barriers that still exist that, that are historically rooted in racism that has occurred in this country discrimination that has occurred. And so we do have to continue to work as a legislative body to look at ways to level the playing field, to balance the scales of justice. We talk a lot about um, criminal justice system and yeah, we need to deal with that, but why would we only balance the scales in one system? We also need to look at education. We need to look at housing. We need to look at poverty. We need to look at wages. Uh, all of the ill effects of discrimination and racism in this country. And so we have to continue to look at ways where we can make investments to give people the greatest of opportunities to live up to their full potential. And I can tell you, uh, I'm committed to doing that work. Well, Congresswoman, I'm afraid that's all the time we have left today. I'm so grateful for your time, this thought-provoking conversation, and all of the really thoughtful questions from the Power to Fly community. Congresswoman Demings, thanks for so much for joining us again. Thank you so much. Invite me back. <laughs> we will. And thank you all for tuning in. The Washington Post Live is going to be back tomorrow at 1.30 Eastern time with the UN Secretary General Antonio Gutierrez in a conversation with my colleague David Ignatius. Once again, I'm Jackie Alemany, author of the Washington Post Power Up newsletter. Thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks for listening. To hear more interviews from this series and other Washington Post Live programs, visit us at WashingtonPostLive.com.